Well, if you have a Bible or a device with some kind of Bible app, grab those things and let's head to Acts chapter 3 together. Acts chapter 3. Uh, for six weeks now, we've been in the book of Acts talking about different facets of the mission God has given us as his church. This mission to go into all the world, helping people far from God become followers of Jesus. Last Sunday, we uh, spent our time addressing a very important question in relation to that, which is this. How do miracles fit into our mission? And look, if you weren't here last Sunday, let me strongly encourage you to spend some time in the next few days just catching up on what you missed I don't want you to go listen, by the way, or watch, because I think I'm this awesome preacher and you need to hear my messages. Um, God did something special in our church last week. And if you were here, you know what I'm talking about. It's really hard to explain, but I received texts about it, got emails about it, read stories on Facebook about it. God just moved in people's lives in ways that only he can. And on top of that, we had nine people that we know of who gave their lives to Jesus Christ for the first time, which is awesome, something to celebrate. So uh, get caught up, all right? You can find the message either online at crosspointcity.com or on our Crosspoint City Church app. Download that and, uh, and use it. It's free, all right? So I, I trust that as you watch, that God will not only use that message in your life, but he'll help you to better understand today's message. Because today we're coming back to this question, how do miracles fit into our mission And we're going to answer it by talking specifically about the message of the miracle. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Miracles are meant to send a message. Miracles are meant to send a message. Imagine I send my wife flowers. I don't send my wife flowers just to send her flowers, right? I send her flowers to send a message. I love you. You're beautiful. You're awesome. You're the greatest mom and greatest wife ever. I'm so grateful I'm married to you. Well, in the same way, when God sends a miracle, he does so to send a message. And this is what makes today's message so important. When the miraculous happens, it's up to us as the people of God to make sense of the message God is sending. And if we don't know what that message is or how to help people respond to it, when a miracle takes place, we might very well waste that opportunity to make Christ known. So with that said, let's dive in and get to work. All right, Acts 3, we're going to pick up in verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, this will all be on the screen so you can follow along there. Here's what it says. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. That's just an area of the temple. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, just a fancy word for godliness there, we have made him walk? Now, I want to stop here and and catch us up in case we forgot about last Sunday or we weren't here, all right? In verse 11, the he that's clinging to Peter and John, that's the crippled beggar that we learned about last Sunday. This was a guy in his 40s. He had been crippled since birth, and he had spent a portion of his life outside the temple begging religious people for money until the day, until the day he met Peter and John, right? Peter and John come along. uh, They're on their way to the three o'clock prayer meeting, and God uses this man to interrupt their plans in a divine way. Well, unlike the rest of the the crowd who, who seems to have just passed him by, Peter and John stop and engage this guy. 
They don't ignore him. They don't just glance in his direction. They gaze upon him in his broken, helpless state, and they give him what he needed most, Jesus. They call on Jesus, and Jesus responds by healing this crippled man. Now, naturally, everyone in the temple who knew this guy, they were amazed at what they saw. And so Peter, he decides to step up and address their amazement. And he does it with two questions. The first question is this, why do you wonder at this? Some Bible translations say, why does this surprise you? Why does it surprise you that a 40-year-old guy who's been crippled since birth is now on his feet walking around leaping and praising God? That's a crazy question for some of us, isn't it? I mean, just imagine if a crippled guy came into Cross Point today, uh, 40 plus years old, and he was in a wheelchair, yet he left walking and leaping out the door, would it surprise you? That's the question that matters here. And, And this is the point of Peter's question. Do miracles surprise you? Here's why I ask. Because the implication of what Peter asks is this, that miracles shouldn't surprise us. They just shouldn't. And if they do, it reveals in us a lack of faith in God. I want you to think about it this way. All right, parents in the room, do your kids ever act surprised that you're actually able to do certain things? It's annoying, isn't it? Happens in my house as well. Uh, just a few weeks ago, my wife, she was going to hang out with some friends, and, and it was a weeknight. So I was here working, finishing up uh, my day, and she brought our girls by so that I could take them. And we decided that instead of moving car seats from her car into my truck, we just keep it easy and, and trade cars. Well, as we're doing that, my five-year-old Rowan speaks up and she asks in a very surprised tone, mommy, do you even know how to drive daddy's truck? <laughs> as if mommies are incapable of driving trucks, right? My girl has a lot to learn about living in the South. <laughs> Parents, you've all had a moment like that, Right? And in that moment, what were you thinking? You were probably thinking, have a little faith, punk. I'm smarter, I'm more capable than you think I am. So look up here. How do you think God feels when we act surprised at his ability to move in power and do miraculous things? Especially when he's been doing them throughout history. I mean, we're talking about the God who spoke the universe into being. The God who parted seas, sent plagues. The God who caused the sun to stand still in the sky. We're talking about the God who who caused the blind to see, caused the lame to walk again. The God who raises dead people back to life. When we act surprised at his ability to do things that defy science and defy natural law, I'm pretty confident that it's just a little insulting to him. I'm also confident that it's why some of us miss out on seeing him do things that only he can do. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Surprise denotes doubt. Surprise denotes doubt. When God moves in power and you act surprised, that doesn't flatter God, it offends God. Because it reveals in you doubt concerning the Lord. And this is so unfortunate It's so unfortunate because the Bible teaches in James 1, 7 through 8 that anytime we ask God for anything in doubt rather than in faith, and this includes miracles, that we're unstable, double-minded people and we shouldn't expect anything from the Lord. The second question that Peter asks is this, uh, why do you stare at us? 
Why do you stare at us? What he's really asking is, you think we did this? You think John and I are responsible that like by our own power, our own godliness, that somehow we pulled this off? We need to understand today, and this is the point of Peter's question, that men don't perform miracles. They don't. There's one man who performs miracles, and his name is Jesus. Now, I'll confess, at certain points in the scripture, it, it looks like something otherwise is happening. Like, I mean, there are cases in which men who aren't named Jesus performs miracles. Uh, we, we see an example of it in Acts 3, and so you might wonder, how do we make sense of that? Well, it's simple, by remembering that when a man performs a miracle, it's not really that man performing that miracle. It's Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, performing that miracle through that man. And Peter's question, what, why are you staring at us like we're the ones responsible? Well, it's just a great reminder of that truth. Now, look, you need to be aware that there is some really bad teaching out there that completely contradicts this truth. And if you buy into it, I promise it will eventually crush you. So to be helpful, I want to share just two of the bad teachings that I'm talking about that fall in line with today's message, all right? Uh, Bad teaching number one is this, that miracles depend on the amount of faith, not the object of faith. Here's the idea. If you as a person can produce enough faith on your own that eventually you'll reach a certain level or amount of faith and your faith will empower you to perform and or receive miracles. Now, I have to tell you, in all honesty, this infuriates me because I've seen its devastating effects play out in the lives of people that I both know and love. For example, uh, years ago when I was a student pastor, one of my students, she was uh, involved in a car accident and she broke her back. Well, one of my leaders who had, unbeknownst to me, bought into this dangerous theology, went to her house with a group of his friends and they were going to pray for her. Well, before praying, they told her, hey, if you'll just have enough faith, God will heal you right now in this moment on the spot. Well, guess what happened? They left and she still had a broken back. They left. She now had a broken spirit because that leader told her, well, unfortunately, you just don't possess enough faith to receive healing from the Lord. But that's not where the story stopped. That leader that told her that, not long after that, walked away from the Lord altogether. You see, he was so consumed with, with trying to attain this level of faith out uh, of an unhealthy desire to do miraculous things, that he just got tired. He got frustrated when he wasn't seeing all the stuff he had hoped to see. And in his mind, he, he eventually just made the decision, if this is what following Jesus is about, I don't want to follow Jesus. This is dangerous. And you need to know today what the truth is, which is this, that miracles depend not on the amount of faith you can muster up, but on the object of our faith. And church, who is the object of our faith? Jesus. Man, you you don't even have to be a church person and you know that answer, right? Just say Jesus and you'll get it right every time. Jesus is the object of our faith. He himself teaches this truth that I'm trying to get you to understand in Matthew 17, 20. He's sitting in front of his disciples and he says to them, if you'll just have faith the size of a mustard seed. You ever seen a mustard seed? They're tiny. I'm holding one in my hand right now. Can you see it? You can't because it's like, man, you're looking and it changes. Is anything really? Something's there, right? There it is. If you can see it, you can catch it. But look, 
They're tiny. This is Jesus's point. It doesn't take a whole lot of faith to see God move in a mighty, miraculous way. All it takes is you placing whatever small amount of faith you have in the right place. And when your faith is in the right place, in Jesus as its object, according to him, you can do mighty things. You can move mountains and accomplish the impossible. The second bad teaching is this. That miracles depend on godliness, not on God. Here's the idea. If you can produce enough godliness on your own, well, over time, you're going to receive the power you need to perform and or receive miracles. Now, this teaching is really bad for a couple of reasons, all right? Uh, Reason number one, it, it actually suggests that you and I are godly people. It assumes that, that we on our own can, can make ourselves godly, which we can't. Nobody in this room today is a godly person. And you might push back against that. James, I, I don't know, bro. I think I kind of am. I would say to you in love, if that's you, you're more ungodly than you think. Nobody's godly. You might do some godly things, but you're not a godly person. None of us are, which is why we all need Jesus. We need Jesus to do a work in us through his death and resurrection, a supernatural work that that changes us and transforms us, a work that makes us appear righteous and godly before God so that he can actually love and accept us and welcome us into his family. But if that work never takes place, look, you're still an unrighteous, ungodly person, which means if a miracle happening depends on your ability to be godly, you will never be seeing a miracle. The second problem with this teaching is this. It completely denies the sovereignty of God. This false idea suggests that you and I can be in control of God versus God being in control of us. Right? Take, for example, the person who's in church every week. You know, they're striving hard to follow all the rules, to live a moral life. Uh, they don't get wasted. They don't sleep around. You know, they don't watch rated R movies, all that stuff. And they don't do any of that stuff because they love God. They're doing it in hopes of manipulating and or controlling God. Here's what they think. Man, if I can just do enough godly things, God will owe me. Therefore, if I ask God to do something miraculous in my life, he has to do it because I'll deserve it. Do you hear the danger in this? The danger of trying to control God through good behavior? It's dangerous because one, it dishonors God. And two, it always goes bad for the person attempting to be in control. I mean, I've seen it play out a thousand times. A person asks God to do something in their life that only he can do. Change this circumstance, heal this sickness, uh, provide in this way, don't let this bad thing happen. And when God doesn't answer according to their time frame, they get mad at God. Because again, their mindset is, I'm a godly person, I'm doing godly things, Uh, God should be doing what I'm asking. I've done all these things for you, God, you need to do this thing for me. It's a control issue. God, I don't want you to be in control of my life, I want to be in control of you. And if I can't be in control of you, then I don't want you. This is dangerous and we as Christ followers can't ever allow ourselves to go here. Which is why we need to always remember, look, look. That miracles don't depend on godliness, they just depend on God. Miracles happen as a result of God's sovereign will. In other words, he's the one making the decisions. 
God decides when miracles should happen and when miracles shouldn't happen. And we have to trust him to make those right decisions. He's smarter than us. Can we just confess that today? He knows what's best when we don't. He's in control. He's in authority. He's in power over all of creation. And we've got to trust God to make the right and best decisions uh, on those miraculous things that we ask for. It's all about him. It's not about our godliness. Now, this brings us to verse 13. If your Bibles are still open, I want you to look back at the passage with me. After uh, Peter tells the crowd that he and John aren't responsible, that they shouldn't be surprised at this miracle, he goes on to share the message of the miracle. Read with me, starting in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Underline that in your Bibles. We're going to come back to it. He glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. In his name, by faith in his name, he's made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And so Peter, he looks at his crowd and he says, let's start here. Let's just talk about God. Let's talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and our fathers. This was intentional on his part. Because he was speaking to a group of Jewish people. Jewish people are God's chosen people. They all descended from the line of Abraham. And so Peter's saying to them, you're God. You're God who chose you. Remember, you didn't pick him. He picked you. You're God. He has a servant. Or some Bible translations actually use the word son there. But, but his servant, you, you denied him in the presence of Pilate. You delivered him over to be killed, and you asked for a murderer to be released to you. Peter's referring here to the story of Jesus and Barabbas that you find in Luke chapter 23. If you don't know the story, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Jesus and Barabbas, they were on trial at the same time for supposed crimes. Jesus was on trial for blasphemy. He claimed to be God, which he is. The resurrection proves it. The religious people hated him for it. They wanted him dead. Uh, Barabbas was on trial for robbery, insurrection, and murder. This was a bad dude. Well, their trial, it took place during the Passover week. The Passover week uh, is a week in which the Jewish people remember and celebrate God freeing their ancestors from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And it was customary during Passover to release a criminal. And so picture it, if you will. Here's Jesus, the perfect son of God, standing beside Barabbas, this violent criminal, and they're both standing in front of Pilate, a Roman governor. Roman uh, uh, Pilate's heard the case against Jesus, and he decides he's not guilty, he's ready to let him go. Yet the crowd who's in front of all of them shout Pilate down. They demand uh, that he release Barabbas, this violent murderer, to them, and put Jesus to death. Now, here's the key part. I told you we'd come back to this. Peter says, his servant that you've killed, like you, you killed the holy and righteous one. Those are messianic terms for Jesus found in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we know he did because we're witnesses. And then he says this. Here's the key part. God has glorified his servant, Jesus. What's that mean? 
that God glorified Jesus. Well, the biblical doctrine of glorification refers to the future day on which we as Christ's followers will receive brand new resurrected bodies from the Lord. Bodies that don't uh, suffer from sickness, don't feel pain, don't struggle with sin. Bodies that don't die. That's coming for us. When Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead, he didn't die and, and raise again just to redeem your spirit or soul. He did it to redeem you as a whole person, which includes the redemption of your body. That's coming, and we know that it's going to happen at the moment Jesus comes back to the earth for a second time. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, it's 1 John 3, 2. Uh, it makes this clear. It says this, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So we can't even comprehend what's coming on that day. Here's what we do know. We know that when he appears, that's Jesus, that we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Ah, oh, what a beautiful promise. That there's coming a day when we're gonna stand face to face with Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And in that moment, there he is in, in all of his glory and his resurrected body. And as we see him, the Lord's gonna change us. And we're gonna receive resurrected bodies like him and we're, we're gonna become like him. Peter even says in 1 Peter 2, 4 that we're gonna share in his divine nature. That's glorification. So when Peter says God has glorified Jesus, here's his point. He's just saying to the crowd, that's already happened for him. Jesus has already received his resurrected body. And not only is he in that body, but he's actually in heaven in that body on, on the throne, ruling and reigning as king over everything. Listen, this understanding of Jesus' glorification makes the explanation of the miracle that just occurred even more significant. Because in verse 16, look back at it. Peter says, it was by faith in his name. The resurrected, ascended, glorified Jesus, it was by faith in his name that this man now knows perfect health in the presence of all you people. If you were here in the spring, uh, you might remember us doing a series on the Ten Commandments. And in that series, week number three, we talked about commandment three, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Now, I told you why that commandment's so significant, but, but I'll remind you again today, the name of God that we find in the Old Testament, Yahweh, it is a sacred name that declares God's identity. It can't be detached from who he is because it speaks of his character, his nature, his divine glory. And so this commandment is don't treat the name of God in an empty and worthless manner because if you do, in reality, you're treating God himself in an empty and worthless manner. We, we've all got to watch our mouths, right? The same is true when it comes to Jesus' name. Jesus is God. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, that God the Father has bestowed on Jesus the Son the name that is above every name, that at his name every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His name speaks of his lordship. It speaks of his authority, his power, all that he is and all that he's capable of. And anytime you call on Jesus' name, that's who you're praying to. That's who you're calling on. You're calling on him. That whole phrase, in Jesus' name, is not meant to be a cute little tag on to a prayer you pray. 
It's given to us so that we can call on the very one we need to move in ways in our lives that only he can move. That's why we can pray with confidence when we pray in the name of Jesus. And we see that confidence in Peter and John. I mean, just picture it with me, if you will. Here they are standing outside the temple gate with this broken, crippled man. He's been crippled all his life. And they know in that moment, because they saw it with their own eyes, Jesus is alive. And he ascended to heaven. And he's glorified. They also know, because he told them before he went to the cross, that anything they asked in his name, that he would do it so that the Father would be glorified in the Son. That's John 14, 13. And so I can just picture Peter looking at John and saying, want to give it a shot? Like, what's the worst that could happen, right? Let's, let's try it out. And so he looks at this crippled beggar and he says, in Jesus's name, get up and walk. What's Peter doing in the moment? He's calling on the glorified, ascended Jesus in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. And Jesus hears from heaven and he responds to Peter by offering his power in that moment and healing that broken, crippled man. It was by faith in Jesus' name, he says, that this man is made well. And he goes on to explain to the crowd, we didn't do it. This miracle wasn't performed by us. It's not about us and it's not for us. Jesus did this. He's the one who performed it. It's all about him and it's all for his glory. Church, that is the message of the miracle. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Anytime anything miraculous happens, it's always only about him. And what we can't do is waste those miraculous moments by pointing people to anything or anyone other than Christ. We have to use those moments to say to people far from God, let me tell you about the Jesus who's responsible. And he came to this earth as the Savior God promised to sin to rescue sinful people like us. He lived the perfect life, and, and it was our sin that sent him to the cross. And as he hung on that cross, bloodied, battered, beaten, bruised, he became our sin. And he became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He took in that moment every ounce of punishment from God that we deserved for being sinful people so that the God of the universe could love us, accept us, and welcome us in. But praise God, that's not where the story stops, right? We've got to tell them about the resurrection. Three days later, God the Holy Spirit entered that tomb and raised Jesus from the dead to defeat sin, death, and hell once and for all so that people like us could call on his name and be changed and be saved and receive life. That's the message of the miracle. Now look, unfortunately, not everybody gets that memo. Unfortunately, some people perform miracles and they preach a message different than the one you just heard. And Jesus himself told us that this would happen. Matthew 24, 24, he says that there would be false Christs and false prophets in our world who would perform miracles not to lead people to him, but to lead people away from him. Now, how in the world does that work? Like, how do people receive power to perform miracles to lead people away from Jesus? Like, is Jesus giving them power? No, the answer is no. Satan is the one giving them power. You see, Satan hates Jesus, and he is willing to do whatever it takes to lead people away from him, even if it means empowering false prophets 
to, to do miracles so that people buy into whatever false message they're perpetuating. You know, earlier, Dana told you that we have a team from our church in Burkina Faso, West Africa right now, and we see this playing out all the time there. I, I don't know, this will either inspire you to go to Burkina with us or it'll convince you never to go, but in many of the villages where we work, there are witch doctors. And these witch doctors do some incredible, miraculous things. There are known cases of these men casting spells on people and having them killed. There are cases where where people will come to the witch doctor in their villages uh, who are sick and they'll receive a charm and they'll wear this charm and this charm that's been blessed by the witch doctor, it'll cure them, it'll make them well. Miraculous stuff is happening. But, But those miracles aren't from the Lord. And the proof of that is found in the fear of the people. Those people live in constant fear, not just of the witch doctors, but of those spirits at work behind the scenes. And, and in many cases, it's that fear that prevents them from putting their faith in Jesus. Now, it's different here, right? Like We oftentimes don't see witch doctors rolling around casting spells on folks. Maybe, maybe it happens in certain places, but it's not the norm. Here in the States, this is the norm. You have men and women who perform miracles and they mix Jesus' name in there somewhere, but then after performing the miracle, they use their platform to push a message that either excludes Jesus altogether or communicates things about him that are completely false. Look, this is why we can't ever put all our stock in miracles. Are miracles amazing? Yes, when they're from the Lord, but not every miracle is from the Lord. And when they're not from the Lord, they're dangerous and they can devastate people spiritually. Here's where we'll close. I'll give you the way to know the difference between the two, all right? How do you know the difference? If the message of the miracle isn't Jesus, chances are the miracle isn't from Jesus. Now look, you might look at this and go, well, James, isn't that a little simplistic? I mean, couldn't Jesus empower somebody to do a miracle and then twist that miracle and use it to perpetuate a false truth? Maybe. But I'm a pretty simple guy. So here's what I think. Why would Jesus, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's God. Why would he empower someone to do a miracle if he knew that they would take it, twist it, distort it, and push a false message? I don't think it would. I don't think Jesus would help someone rob him of glory in that way. And so here's my simple advice as the simple guy I am, all right? Miracle happens. Leave your brain on and listen. See where the person takes it. Is the core of the message they preach after the miracle, Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us as sinners. Do they call people to a proper response to that message? And you need to be here next Sunday because we're gonna talk about the proper response to the message of the miracle. Read ahead, starting in verse uh, 17, all right? If those elements aren't present... If Jesus isn't there, if the proper response isn't there, again, chances are that miracle wasn't from Jesus and that person who performed it is one of those false Christs that he talked about in Matthew 24. And as I was thinking about how to close today, uh, I really wrestled. Like, man, for a couple days, I couldn't really figure out how I wanted to land the plane, if you will. Last week's message was very practical in nature. I told you that today's message would be more theological in nature, and it has been. And so, man, eventually I just stopped wrestling, and I went, Lord, show me how we need to respond. And he did. See, I think when 
when messages are, are more theological like they are today, in many cases, the only proper response is worship. We just celebrate him. We celebrate all that he is and all that he's capable of. We celebrate what he's done for us as broken, helpless, needy people. And so that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna celebrate the message of the miracle. And more importantly, we're gonna celebrate the God of that message. And so as we do, here's what I'd say, a couple things. Uh, Maybe you need a miracle today. You need God to do a work in your life, relationally, emotionally, physically. I I would say to you, in the next few moments, why don't you just pray and call on the name of Jesus? Like, don't just offer prayers out into the, the atmosphere. Remember, right now, Jesus is ascended. He's glorified. He's alive. He hears from heaven and he responds to our prayers. Call on him and ask him to move in your life. And if his answer is not right now, then ask him to sustain you until your miracle finally comes. Now, finally, I would say maybe the miracle you need is a spiritual one. You walked into the room today and you don't know Jesus. And you're struggling to find peace. You're struggling to find joy. You wonder about life's purpose and life's meaning. And today you've heard the message that really matters. The message of a God who loved you enough to give his life for you so that he could change you and welcome you into his family as the person he's created you to be. Maybe you need to respond today and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to take control of your life and to make you a new person. If that's the miracle you need, I want to help you receive it right now. All over the room. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places wherever they are. If you're that person that knows right now you need Jesus, you need the God of the universe to do something in you and for you that you have been unable to do for yourself. Right now in this moment in prayer, just say to him, God, I need you to do a miracle in me today. I confess that I'm a broken, sinful person and I need a savior. And I'm putting my faith in Jesus as the savior I need. I believe in his death on the cross for my sins. I believe in his resurrection from the dead that I might receive new life and eternal life from you. And so God, right now I'm asking you, forgive me of my sins, past, present, and future. Take control of my life. Put your Holy Spirit in me and change me into the person you've created me to be. God, I say yes to Jesus.